Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show, which is now in its 22nd year on voiceamerica.com. And the primary reason for the show is to help our listeners obstacles and opportunities and problems into solutions. And that has been my mantra for decades of doing this work. And I'm, I'm excited today. We're going to be talking about health, but we're going to be talking about mental and emotional health as well as physical health. In the whole area of racism. My guest is Dr. She's she's a PhD. Her name is Dana Bowen Matthew, and she is the Dean and Harold H. Green Professor of Law at the George Washington University School of Law. She's a leader in public health and civil rights law. And Dr. Matthew has also held many public policy roles, which includes serving as senior advisor for the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as a member of the health policy team for the U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. She's the author of the best-selling Just Medicine, and her new book is Just Health. Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. And welcome back, Dr. Dana Matthew. Thank you so much. And please do uh, call me Dana Patricia. Okay. All right. Well, I think what you're really talking about today is a compelling look at how racial inequality undermines our public health and what we can do to really change it. So let me read a couple of stats and then ask you, you know, and then really start the interview. Black men have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group in the United States, as the CDC figures affirm. Based on Census Bureau projections, the life expectancy for a black American male born in 2020 is 74 years old, nearly five years less than the life expectancy for a white newborn male. The death rate for black Americans of all genders is generally higher than the whites for heart diseases, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, and diabetes, HIV, AIDS, and homicide. And according to the National Center for Health Statistics, the life expectancy of black Americans overall is now at its lowest since since 2000, 71.8 years, largely due to COVID-19. So clearly there's a national health crisis among black Americans. And so is it genetics or is there something else? So welcome, um, Dana. And, and I think that's the question is, I mean, this is a big question, but there is a national health crisis among all of us. But is it genetics among a people of color or black Americans or is there something else? Go ahead. There, uh, there are so many factors that have to do with what goes into life expectancy. I could not say that genetics are irrelevant. They are not, Patricia. It is clear that biology and genetics, your family history, and many other things, including health behaviors and your access to clinical care, will have an influence on life expectancy. But Patricia, my book is about that something else. The words you said, is it genetics or is it something else? It turns out Something else is the biggest determinant, and that is your social and economic context, your environment, 
mm-hmm. is the something else that most, more than genetics, more than biology, more than even your health behavior. Where you live, where you work, where you eat, where you play, mm-hmm. has more than anything to do with how long you live and how well you live. Mm-hmm. You know, I do want to ask you, though, do you feel that over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, because there's been, you know, so much work in this area, that there is more opportunity in those areas for black Americans? There is more opportunity for black Americans. There is more opportunity for white, Latino Americans. We as a society have done a better job of improving life expectancy, uh, decreasing death due to infant mortality overall. What hasn't changed is the gap, the difference mm. between the that blacks and whites, Latinos and whites have. And it's that inequality that continues to plague us and that I would like to find a solution to. Although we have come a long way, you know, when you think about it was like in the 1950s where people, you know, black people had to use other bathrooms. You know, it's, it's yeah. 60 years, 70 years later, but we still come a long way, but not yeah. enough. So, so it's, it's clear that we have left overt segregation um, and when you say come a long way, I am sitting in the office of the dean at the GW Law School. Um, I uh, know that that was not possible until the sacrifices that have been made over right. the past um, hundreds of years made it possible for me to sit here. At the same time, uh, the way that I would uh, uh, describe how far we have to come is not only that the gap uh, the, the frequency with which people have the opportunity to do what I'm doing today as a black person, as a Latino person, as a native person versus as a white person, that gap is still quite wide. Um, and the other concern that I have that's even uh, perhaps more complicated um, is that we have now changed the way in which we segregate. We've changed the way in which we discriminate. Much of it is subtle. Uh, much of it is unintentional. Uh, much, much of it would appear uh, to be unconscious, but has the same pernicious effect. Schools remain uh, in many, many parts of the country, not all, but in many parts of the country as segregated as they were before Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, residential mm-hmm. segregation has concentrated poverty and underemployment and poor schools in many parts of the country, metropolitan Northeast areas especially, um, as they were before the passage of the Fair Housing Act. And in some instances, we're going backwards. The Mm. difference between maternal mortality for moms who are black and moms who are white is widening as opposed to narrowing. So, yes, we Mm. have come a long way, uh, but in some areas we're moving backwards. Why do you think that is? What, Dana, why do you think we're moving backwards? In that way, I think that uh, we have not kept up with the changes in the way that discrimination happens um, in terms of the way we prevent it or control it. Our laws, which were passed during the 1960s in order to fight segregation, 
that form of discrimination from which we have come a long way. Uh, the water fountains, the seats on the buses, even where I could be buried. If I am black and you are white, Patricia, there were laws that said we couldn't be buried next to each other in the same cemetery. Um, so we've done a good job of reversing uh, that kind of discrimination, and we have the laws that would not permit that kind of overt intentional discrimination from occurring today. However, the form that discrimination takes so that indeed we accomplish the same type of segregation, the same division in our schools, the same lack of opportunity that was once overt is now subtle and covert uh, mm. has not been prohibited by law in any different way than the old laws that prevented overt segregation, and they just don't work anymore. Mm, very interesting. I'm going to talk more about that. Let me ask you this, because we hear constantly hear the word structural racism. What really is structural racism? I'm so glad you asked. It is a system that does two things. When I say system, I mean that every institution, every major institution in our society, that one would need to have an opportunity equally to enjoy is characterized by two things. One, a hierarchical arrangement of people by the way they look. You're more mm -hmm. valuable if you look one way and less valuable if you look the other way. You are superior and inferior. You are mm -hmm. advantaged and disadvantaged. So we array people hierarchically based on the way that they look. That's number one that this system does. Number two, structural racism is a system that allocates all of the resources of society, all of the opportunities and all of the power largely in line with that hierarchical arrangement. That's structural mm. racism. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I hear that. And of course, if you look kind of on the surface of things, Dana, and you see that we've had a black president, we have a black vice president, and we, you know, if you, and, and we have a lot, we have, you know, several black people that are in legislature and Congress and Senate, not many, but several, you think, well, look, I mean, look at how we progressed. So comment on that, because I'm talking about the average person who looks at this on the surface and says, really? Of course. And I, um, I appreciate being able to delve below the surface, because in my book, I take a public health perspective of looking at the data that tells me not what one president or one vice president or one dean has done to make tremendous progress but what largely communities, populations have done. Remember that hierarchical arrangement. Think of it this way. When you look at the large group of people who we call black, African-American, or descendants from African ancestors, we see patterns of discrimination that repeat themselves in housing, mm. in education, in access to clean air, unpolluted water, healthy mm -hmm. food, recreational spaces, fair employment, over and over and over again. So when we see those populations coming up short in 
all of these institutions, then what we realize is that while we'll have succeeded in exceptions to the rule, the data tell us that the rule is still largely discriminatory. I see. I see. So what you're saying is that on the surface, right, if you look at the big things, but it's not the majority, it's, it's, the, it's the minority that we're really looking at that we make, we make into the majority, if you will. In many instances. May I give you a word picture, if I might? Sure, sure. I just, I just bought a, um, a lovely little bungalow um, on, on the bay. And uh, I take long walks on the beach, and sometimes I will see a dead fish on the beach. And I will think to myself, uh, something was wrong with that fish. It, it got uh, hit by a predator, uh, swallowed something uh, in the form of a pollutant. But whatever it was that happened to that individual fish, there was a time in the part of the summer, my first summer there, that I walked along the beach and I saw hundreds of dead fish. They were strewn across the beach, and my surmise was very different in that instance. It wasn't the fish that I thought must have had a problem. I thought it must have been the ocean. Something happened that hit all of these fish equally that put them at a disadvantage at one time so that they all ended up. I repeatedly see in our society's data that it is minority and underrepresented kids that are not performing in school, that have an unequal opportunity to have educational attainment, who have a disproportionate representation in juvenile uh, delinquency yeah. hearings and proceedings, who have an un, uh, 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 unexplained disproportionate representation um, in schools that do not have AP and IB classes, um, and therefore end up having a disproportionate representation among the lowest wage earners. Over and over again, I see these patterns repeated, and I now think to myself, as I did as I walked on the beach, something's wrong with the ocean. It's not the mm -hmm. fish. Mm -hmm. Very in, And very good analogy and very easy to understand. Yeah, and, and so... It, Let's look at this word. We have a few minutes to break. So let's just look at this word, which is comorbidity rather than biological comorbidity. First, explain what that means. And then are we talking here about social comorbidity rather than biological in that example you used? Yes, yes. Um, so comorbidities are multiple uh, uh, diseases, epidemiologists think of comorbidities as multiple diseases affecting a single person or organism. Okay. I think of comorbidities as social, multiple social conditions affecting a person or a community. Mm. This is, again, the ocean problem. I will, uh, if you'll allow me, use my parents as an example when we come back from the break. Mm -hmm. But before I do, say that social comorbidities have the same impact that we see biological comorbidities or disease comorbidities have on a single person or population mm. and we in the pandemic in the pandemic we saw that one terrible virus coronavirus could affect an entire population regardless of color race right. ethnicity right. age or gender but for those members of the population that had additional social conditions that put them at a disadvantage 
social mm. comorbidities, they were affected worst. Mm-hmm. Which could be, give an example of those. Give an example of those social conditions. Sure. I'm going to give you uh, two examples. Housing uh, that is not decent uh, and not safe. So if okay. I am trying to weather a pandemic um, in the Hamptons, uh, where there's a lot of uh, open space and exercise recreational space, and I can use my computer uh, in my mm-hmm. safety of my home, uh, right. I have one exposure to disease versus right. if I live where I grew up in the South Bronx and I live in a very tall apartment building uh, with multiple generations in my mm-hmm. small apartment. Um, and in order to get to work, I have to ride the elevator um, and the subway uh, in yeah. order to yeah. reach my place of employment. A different exposure to disease. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And on that note, we're going to take a break. This is fascinating. And we're going to talk more about the health of American states and cities uh, and how that handles with disparities of income. You know, how is how is that if there's disparities in income, how is the health related in terms of, you know, how uh, in American states? And we'll talk about different diseases as well. So when we come back, we'll talk about also the relationship between income inequality and violent crime. And we're talking today to uh, Dana Bowen Matthew. Her book is Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. She is a dean at the Harold H. Green Professor of Law at the George Washington University School of Law. Dr. Matthew is a leader in public health and civil rights law, and has also held many public policy roles. These include serving as senior advisor to the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and as a member of the health policy team for Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, 
and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the Converse viewpoint. Dare to be acquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show Hello, everyone, and we are back with a really interesting, fascinating program about a very important topic. We're talking to Dana Bowen Matthew. She's um, an attorney, Ph.D., and Dr. Matthew is dean and Harold H. Green professor of law at George Washington University Law School. She's a leader in public health and civil rights law, and she's held many public policy roles, which includes serving as senior advisor to the Office of Civil Rights for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and as a member of the health policy team for U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. She's the author of the best-selling book, Just Medicine, and her brand new book is Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. And what she's really looking at, she makes a strong evidence-based case that black and brown Americans are disproportionately dying young because of structurally inequality and racism. And so we're, we're talking about prejudice and poverty that continues to aggravate poor health and premature death among people of color across the United States. Okay. And what we can do about it. Welcome back, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let's talk about, um, you know, if that's the case in terms of um, this inequality in terms of, um, of health, you know, and how po- poverty continues to advocate, aggravate poor health and premature death among people of color. What can we do about it and what are we doing about it? So I, um, I think some of the most important things we can do are the things that will change income education, and housing. Um, I, uh, I have to tell you, um, in your introduction, I think um, uh, it's important to note that I used to be on the uh, health policy staff with Debbie Stabenow. Um, I'm, I'm now at the, at the GW Law School, but when I had the privilege of working with uh, Senator Stabenow and her staff, it was impressed upon me during the water lead cam- contamination crisis um, how those families that were vulnerable in Flint, Michigan, were vulnerable because of their lack of education, their lack of income, and the lack of housing equity. Those were the things that made them the most vulnerable. So it's my view that we will fix, and the solutions that will be the longest 
lasting, the longest lasting, and the most effective are to uh, improve and equalize access to educational opportunity, improve and equalize access to a living wage, and improve and equalize access to the opportunity to live in affordable, clean, safe housing. Mm -hmm. Those three things are the most important things. I know this not only because of my work with Debbie Stabenow, uh, terrific, uh, that she's just a terrific senator um, and her staff, but I know this because of my own life. My parents, my uh, mother and father, uh, died prematurely. My father died at age 49, Patricia, and he died at age 49, I would contend, primarily because of what we have been talking about, these social comorbidities that aggregate together to form structural racism. Um, The example I will give you is uh, from his work life. Remember I said one of the biggest interventions would be to pay a living wage. Well, my father had to work four jobs in order to make what would be Mm. the equivalent of a living Mm. wage. Mm. This is not positive living, just to take the title wow. of your program, um, he would get up in the morning and go down to the Bowery Savings Bank, um, and he was a commercial real estate lender, appraiser rather, um, and he'd work that as his nine-to-five job. Believe me, I was mm-hmm. very proud of him because I grew up in the South Bronx, remember, and so to mm-hmm. see my father stride up Ward Avenue, my street, onto the subway, the number six, down to uh, 42nd Street and Grand Central Station where he worked, uh, was wearing a suit. Oh, my gosh, my heart swelled with pride. Mm. Um, and I'd see mm. him coming back home, 5.30, 5.45. But uh, then he would eat dinner, uh, take a nap, and it really was only a nap uh, because he then got up and he worked the uh, graveyard shift mm. driving in subway for eight hours at mm. Motorman Bowen um, in overalls. Um, so two eight-hour jobs and then some side jobs on the weekend managing uh, real estate as a sort of janitor handyman, um, mm. and uh, you're, you're going to die early, uh, as he did. Now, yeah. why did he no living wage? Why was the living wage so important? Well, uh, second important um, intervention that we need to fix, uh, residential segregation. I'm African-American. My parents are both African-American and African-Americans and Latino-Americans were and are concentrated in the South Bronx, one of the worst neighborhoods in New York City and in the country. That mm-hmm. neighborhood has not only the worst violence, the worst air to breathe, the worst access to food and access to medical care, but in my father's case, it was relevant that they had the worst access, we had the worst access to educational attainment. So the schools were horrible. My public school, PS93, I went to from grade one through four, and by the time I was in fifth grade, my father and mother realized that if they didn't get me out of the South Bronx, I would be going to middle school at PS123. Philippians 123. That school is now closed. It was so full of violence, so underperforming, so absent of college counselors, college preparatory courses, IB 
programs, music programs, art programs, the kinds of things that would have readied me for college were across town in neighborhoods that were not black or Puerto Rican. All right. Let me just ask you this. Had they Mm -hmm. kept you in that school, do you think you would be where you are today? There's no question that I would not be where I am today. Uh, More than that, I mean, we have what I would call a natural experiment. Um, In my book, I talk about the families that work to get their kids out of the neighborhood, the Greens, the Inses, the Bowens, my family, all of us who took, uh, uh, who had parents who took it upon themselves to make sure we were educated outside of the South Bronx, Mm -hmm. um, all of us uh, made it out of the South Bronx. We were able to uh, finish college, get good jobs, um, educate our children in college, um, have a very um, uh, lovely home. These things were available to us because we didn't go to PS 123. Uh, those of us who did have criminal records, um, really? have been uh, incarcerated or are on drugs um, or uh, are no longer living. You know, what I'm hearing is this is why this is such a passion for you, because you've actually lived it. I mean, you've experienced this. So it's, And I, I feel like you're saying, you know, I'm, I want to do something to help so I can prevent this. Am I right there? You're absolutely right there. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's very strong. The other question I have for you is, in today's world, if, let's say, your father was his age today, and you were young, you know, so just a fast forward it, like whatever it is, 50 years, would he have had more opportunity today? Would he have still had to, to work four jobs, Danny, is the question, in today's world? So as an African-American man, he still has a higher likelihood of having to work four jobs than mm. as a man in the United States today. So he also has a much higher exposure to the potential of incarceration. Um, he has a much, he had and would have today, a much higher probability of uh, shortened life expectancy as your, um, as your data cited in the introduction uh, mm. told us. Um, so uh, his life expectancy uh, did not uh, fail to improve um, today versus uh, when he died in 1979, uh, but and his absolute income improved um, at today versus 1979, uh, but two things did not improve. The difference between his life expectancy and whites, the difference between his earning uh, potential and whites, the difference between his educational attainment, probability of educational attainment uh, and whites has not improved in fact. Uh, many of those have gone backwards. Mm. That's that's pretty amazing. So basically, you're saying not much has changed in that respect. Not much has changed in the respect of the gaps of inequality. In in a way, and thank you for asking it this way, you're making me realize that the answer is actually more nuanced and complicated than that. Uh, At the same time that much has changed, right, the forms of discrimination have changed, not much has changed in terms of our defenses against them, and therefore discrimination is taking a a, a larger toll and winning the day in places we thought we had won. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it. it's interesting because, as I said, you know, on the outside looking in without knowing all of this, it doesn't look that way, Dana. It really doesn't because we see yeah. on the outside so much opportunity for black Americans, right? I mean, you see it. You see it in the news. You see it in the arts. You see it in sports. I mean, you see it in those big areas. You see it in science. But still, um, that's not it's not the majority. Well, that's right. And the thing that's important is that you see in, let's take uh, arts and sciences, um, you see that if a child is uh, in a school district that is predominantly white, that school district has, uh, uh, those school districts, the aggregate school districts in the United States that are white, have $23 billion more in funding for um, arts and sciences and advanced education than those school districts that are predominantly black. So you are right that the um, there is no overt barrier anymore. We don't have a sign that says you are not allowed to walk um, on right. uh, this side of the street or that side of the street. That overt barrier is there, is gone. But the thing that has not changed at all is the access uh, to the uh, uh, to the opportunity to be educated if you're poor and if you're black. Um, that has not changed very much at all. As a consequence, the gap in 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 infant mortality and death rates hasn't changed very much at all. Now, what I think your listeners must realize um, is that. Uh, what has changed is the way we discriminate. Um, we don't use signs. We don't use uh, uh, overt epithets anymore very frequently, almost never. Uh, but instead, uh, we make it impossible for someone like my father to send their kids to a school where they have equal opportunity for education uh, mm-hmm. without working four or five jobs, without yeah. busing yeah. across town. Yeah. Um, so... The school uh, discrimination has changed dramatically. Yeah. You're right. Interesting. It's so better that nobody is uh, throwing a tomato at me if I want to go to school um, right. in, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a good district. Well, before, in the, in, the la- in the last segment, which is coming up in, in three minutes, I want to talk about corrective measures and all the things that we can do to correct. But before we do that, I want to ask you, because it's kind of the elephant in the room, is the relationship between income equality and the incidence of violent crime. Because we still see that a lot, right, among black men, black Americans, and people often point to that. And I'd, I'd like you to address that. We've got about three minutes. Yeah, income inequality is one of the most um, uh, pernicious indicators of an increase in crime. Um, uh, There are lots of reasons for this. Again, much of it points to uh, education. Uh, Much of it points to uh, having no opportunity uh, to earn equally with uh, with uh, non-minority earners um, and therefore making, honestly, crime pay. Um, so if I go to school and by 16, uh, I'm not going to uh, be able to get a job that pays a living wage. I've, uh, my dropout rate is so high because uh, any number of things are true. I didn't have access to good courses. I got uh, disciplined at a disproportionate rate 
uh, for the same behavior as whites, any number of behaviors. Um, I had uh, uh, childhood traumas um, in my neighborhood, and all of these things conspired to make it possible for me to, at 16, uh, be virtually illiterate and virtually unemployable. By that time, the fact that I am not going to be a productive and participating member of a, uh, of a, of a, of a legitimate society, right? I can't get uh, a living wage job down at the Bowery Savings Bank. I, therefore, am going to have a much lower risk of loss for participating in an illegitimate society, uh, for mm-hmm. participating in an economy that... Um, uh, that is uh, that is selling drugs. That is um, uh, right. selling uh, contraband. Band. Um, so understand that crime really is a rational choice um, when the systemic conspires against equal participation in a non-criminal economy. Mm-hmm. Right, and we have one minute, but I just want to say, but also there are low-income people who are white and of other ethnic that also are susceptible to crime too. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And we saw this and continue to see this in the opioid pandemic. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that's a revelation in the opioid pandemic is that despair hits everyone equally, no matter what your race is. Mm -hmm. You will... You will go to drugs. You will go to dysfunctional behavior. If you have no hope, you have no income. If your family structure and your exposure to opportunity is taken away, you will have the same reaction, whether you're black, brown, green, yellow, purple, or otherwise. And that's a good point to make. All right. When we come back, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Dana Bowen Matthew, uh, really about what is it? What are the corrective measures available to reduce the disproportionately high death rate of minority populations in America? What can we do with wages, with segregation, um, in terms of hospitalization? What can we do with public health policy? So that's what we'll talk about in our next segment. Uh, again, um, Dana Bowen Matthew uh, is the dean and Harold H. Green Professor of Law at the George Washington University School of Law. And she's a leader in public health and civil rights law who has had many public policy roles. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com. America's Good Voice. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listen for Go to Health Radio, featuring host Jonathan Marks and health experts from around the world who bring evidence-based education from Western, alternative, and holistic practices. We bring together you, seeking relevant and proven information for your healthcare needs and reputable healthcare experts and companies who offer quality education for your benefit. Monthly, we also share continuing education for medical professionals. Listen live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on Voice America Variety. 
Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. I'm talking to Dana Bowen-Matthew. She's the author of the new book, Just Health. Street, treating Structural Racism to Heal America. Dana Bowen-Matthew is the Dean and Harold H. Green Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. She's a leader in public health and civil rights law, and she's held many public policy roles. Welcome back, Dana. All right. Yeah, let's talk about what we can do about it, you know, and also I think be debunking some misconceptions by people who think, well, there's a lot of jobs out there. Right. I mean, everybody has opportunity. Let's just get out there and and go for it. So talk about that. And then what is it right that we can do to heal and to, um, you know, to help? In fact, I, I, I do want to leave your listeners with a lot of hope, Patricia, for a couple of reasons. Right. One, I think there's something that everybody can do. This seems like such a huge problem. Um, but if we all consider it our collective obligation to improve life in the United States for all of us. There's a, there's a, a, a hundred ways that each of us can participate. And so I do want to say that uh, despite the, the sound of all of the data, uh, there's a lot of hope, especially now, Patricia, at the end, I want to say why I think it's especially hopeful now. Um, okay. But uh, let, let's just start from um, 
the earliest education uh, um, interventions that could make a difference. Remember I said the $23 billion separates the funding between white and black districts in school mm-hmm. districts in America. Um, it is also the case that discipline uh, in schools is different for blacks than it is for whites. Um, Absenteeism, therefore, is different. Uh, Access to uh, excellent pre-college courses are different. If we could begin to improve the way that we educate minority as well as majority children together, we would improve lifetime outcomes. If we made it possible for children to be treated for poor behavior rather than sent to juvenile delinquency and to be sent to um, uh, opportunities that uh, schools that give them the opportunity um, to excel without being expelled or suspended uh, for immature and poor behavior. Um, If we could treat the trauma that leads to children having violent behavior in schools, if we could bring a village concept around children who are missing parents um, and have parents who are operating um, uh, at, a, at a deficit because of uh, societal impacts um, or behavior choices. There is a way that we can nip in the bud the cycle, if you will, of uh, uh, of a lack of educational opportunity and a life, lack of educational attainment um, that would make a lifetime of difference. So equalizing opportunity for educational attainment is number one. After that, I think equalizing opportunity to pay a living wage is mm-hmm. number two. You mentioned that there are plenty of jobs out there. We know from many experiments, many um, uh, uh, researchers have shown us that the pay level and the quality of jobs increases life expectancy and decreases drug dependency and drug overdose. This is among black, white, and Latino populations. So there may be jobs, but they are not jobs that are paying a living wage. It Mm -hmm. is still the case that the majority of people who are working for below $15 an hour in the United States are women and underrepresented minorities. When the living wage is at minimum $15 an hour, then people will not be in a position of being unable to educate, feed, house, and clothe their children without multiple jobs, as my parents were. They will not be any longer in a position to have jobs that are in uh, the working conditions are so inferior, um, as we've seen at some of the um, places that have been recently uh, challenged. The case against Tesla, uh, Mississippi um, uh, 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 food packing plants, lots of the conditions that people are working in, as well as their wages, Uh, if equalized, would be an important intervention that would make, again, a lifetime of difference. And then thirdly, if we were serious and deliberate about making affordable, safe housing available to all, regardless of race and ethnicity. Now, how could we do this? Well, the first thing we can do is stop under-enforcing the civil rights laws that made it mandatory that we do not discriminate by race in housing, in leasing, in sales. If we begin to enforce fully Title VI and Title VII, 
the laws that equalized opportunity for fair wages, promotions, and fair working conditions, and access to clean air, clean water, fair education. If those laws were enforced vigorously and equitably, we'd see a reverse in those three areas, income, education, and housing. Those are the places where the interventions would be felt. Where do you see the progress? What do you see the progress right now, Dana? I mean, where is there? Is there progress in all three areas or in one more than another? There has been progress, um, especially where health providers partner with housing providers in order to improve affordable housing. There has been progress um, where you see interventions uh, to provide healthy food for neighborhoods like Flint, Michigan that have no supermarket. Uh, but where we have not seen nearly enough progress is in equalizing uh, opportunities for low and fair wage jobs, equalizing opportunity uh, for the kinds of educational attainment that would make a lifetime of difference. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So what would you say is your, you know, if you were to sum this up, I mean, you want to leave our listeners with a a message today, what would it be? Justice equals good health. And it is my view that justice is good for all of our health. We've been talking about the data that show underrepresented minorities are suffering. But do you know, Patricia, that the thing that gives me the most hope is that we're beginning to see that there are reasons to eradicate racism to give us all a better life. We have seen studies that tell us where you find uh, Google searches, more Google searches for racial epithets than uh, in other areas. Blacks and whites live a shorter life. Blacks and white babies die earlier in their first year of living. Racism is bad for all of our health. I'm Mm. optimistic because on the heels of the George Floyd murder, on the heels of the Ahmed Arbery murder, on the heels of the marches that showed black, white, young, old, immigrants, uh, native-born, all marching together to say we have come to an inflection point where we want this country that was founded on the principle that all are created equal, all are endowed with inalienable rights. We want to live our aspiration. I'm seeing that in a moment of time that the pandemic caused us to pause and think. I'm seeing much more realization that we're all in this together. Really wonderful. I mean, really, you know, I mean, this is a big issue. But what you're looking at is, you, you, you know, you're, you've separated this and you've looked at different pieces of it. And you're talking very practically about things that we can do. What can each of us do? In our day, if, if I'm listening to this interview and I'm one person, what can I do in my own life? Look around and find the place where you see inequality that you can address. So if I'm a school teacher, I might see it in the patterns of discipline. I might see it in the assignment for special education versus IB classes. And I might say, you know what, I'm going to tutor those kids who are not getting assigned. I'm going to advocate as a parent at the PTA uh, meeting for a more 
equitable distribution of of of, uh, of expulsions and and discipline. Maybe I work at a supermarket. Maybe I work at a at a manufacturing plant, and I am seeing over and over again that the promotions are going in a direction that I don't think anybody intentionally is giving preference by race, but the outcomes, the patterns are resulting in a racialized stratification. Mm -hmm. Maybe I work in a health organization, and I want to ask my organization to start keeping data. Who's getting the operations, the medication, the treatments of choice? I don't think anybody individually means for these patterns to develop. In other words, look around where you are and find an opportunity to fight for equality in any Mm -hmm. setting, anywhere, and it will help. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's a wonderful interview. How can people find you, write to you, get your book? I'd be thrilled if people went to the um, NYU my publisher's website or their independent bookstore and found Just Health. It is on Amazon as well. Um, I'd love to hear from people after they've read it. You can look me up at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. I'm the dean, and my email is on the web. All right, and it's New York University Press. Dana, thank you so much for being on the program. It was um very important, practical, and inspirational, and hopeful at the same time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much. It was a privilege. Thank you. Stay on the line for a second. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. You can find me on Facebook, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. If you'd like to get a copy of my newsletter so you can see all these wonderful, incredible guests I have on each week, write to me, Patricia, at patriciaraskin.com, and I'll put you on my newsletter list. Also, if you're thinking of doing your own podcast where you want to get your positive message out, I not only help people get their positive messages out directly as an interviewer, but I also help people who want to get their message out so I coach them and train them so you can have fabulous interviews and fabulous podcasts. All right, folks, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next week, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.